to me, you know, when we talk about AI, like I think that's where the industry, like there's the marketing speak, which is like, oh yeah, anytime you have like a, a linear regression and a spreadsheet, that's AI. And like, okay, great, you guys go have fun. But like when I think of AI, I really think about these like systems that, you know, are adding automation to them. Data, artificial intelligence, the metaverse, crypto and Web3, and quantum computing are just a few of the technology innovations that are changing the way we live, work, and experience the universe. I am your host, Ganesh Padmanabhan, and this is Stories in AI, a podcast where we explore the various facets of technologies like AI, its impact on individuals, organizations, and the society. You will hear from a variety of experts and practitioners, their personal stories, their best practices, and advice to put technology to work. I hope you enjoy this engaging conversations. Now, before we begin, a note about our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Experian, whom you may know as the Consumer Credit Bureau, but they are at heart a data company. When you're buying a car or home, sending your kids to college, of borrowing to grow your business, Experian is most likely helping you behind the scenes. They unlock the power of data to make better decisions, get access to financial services, and to prevent crime, unlocking a whole world of opportunities for individuals and organizations. Find out more at Experian.com. Today's discussion, I'm speaking with my dear friend, Dr. Andy Terrell. Andy is a technology executive with multiple startup experiences, specifically in implementing large-scale distributed data applications. In his previous academic research life, he was known for creating novel algorithms to speed implementations of mathematical models on some of the world's largest supercomputers. Um, Andy is a PhD from uh, computer science PhD from the University of Chicago and he has held several research positions at Argonne National Lab, Sandia National Lab, Institute of Computational Engineering and Sciences at the University of Texas, Austin, the Texas Advanced Computing Center, and then he was also part of the founding team at Anaconda, Cove, Bullmetrics, Kind Health, and the Rex Real Estate Data Exchange. Andy is super passionate about open source, and um, he's also the board member and was one of the original founding members of NumFocus Foundation, which is very popular among the wider scientific Python community. Andy, welcome to Stories in AI. How are you today? Doing great. It's an awesome Friday. The weather's good here in Austin. Can't complain. It's beautiful. I know. We're just on two different sides of the same city, Austin. I'm in Austin. You're in Austin. You're in Georgetown, actually, so don't cheat. Yeah. Uh, it's still awesome. <laughs> I'm cool too, man. I'm still cool. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're, you're, yeah, you're, you're a blessed man. You lived here in downtown for a long time, right? Before you moved up there. Um, yeah, yeah. We, 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 we decided we, we moved to the country before it was cool, like back in, you know, before COVID happened. So -COVID. Um, <laughs> now How it's like everyone's moving up here, but yeah. That's true. It's the coolest thing to do. And the real estate pr prices, I'm sure you're glad for it, right? Um, oh, yeah. Anyway, Andy, thanks so much for taking the time today. Um, why don't we start with your personal story? Give us your background and how you got into data science, your research interests, the whole nine yards. Yeah, that's a fun one. Um, and, you know, I've been listening to a lot of Dan Carlin on talking about podcasts, and you know, he was always like, 
well, you got to think how far back you really want to go. Right. And like, so it'll start like the, the, the Greek story all the way with the Assyrian empire. And you're like, okay, how did that work? Um, so maybe for me, I guess I could start like, you know, in, in college, I was a, I was a, a physics and math person. And I, I argued a lot with people in the philosophy departments, the philosophy department had better parties than the, the physics people just, you know, and so I would end up there and I ended up um, getting a degree in philosophy. And uh-huh. from that, like kind of fell in love with like, like the logical side of philosophy and like the, you know, reading like the Carnaps and uh, Wittgenstein and like these people who like really went in the depths of, of uh, logic and like how, reasoning works and whatnot and so you, you get done with uh your, your 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 bachelor's and you've got like a philosophy and a physics degree and you're like what the heck do you do now grad school <laughs> <laughs> so i actually applied to like eight grad school programs um one cs one math and then the rest were philosophy and it turns out cs pays the best so here I am. <laughs> that was it was like you could you could come to our philosophy and, and pay us or you can go to, to math and like do something else. But CS like they're like, we need you to come teach classes. We will pay for everything. We'll give you a stipend. And, and so yeah. um, I ended up ended up in a CS program. But my, my true love was more like physics and philosophy. Yeah, everybody's history is actually a very simple logic. If you think through the threads, right, it's always about having fun. And, and making decisions that optimize for that. It's about optimizing right. for money early on in your life, right? And uh, and it's it's yeah. probably also optimizing the subjects that really gets you uh, excited and energized. So go ahead. Yeah, and, and, and that's totally right. Like it's, uh, we know now that humans are in the economy and we, we make the best yeah. choices of the ones available. And so at the time, like CS was like the one available. And like, in, in like the... I ended up in a school that was a little bit weird because it's University of Chicago computer science department. And they had, um, they were a very theoretical department. So any other place it would be called a math department. And in fact, uh-huh. like one of the guys I worked with worked with Carnap, who was like one of the guys who worked with Girdle. Like, so like, it was like in this sweet spot of like, you know, the most philosophical, like mathematical, like CS department that exists on the planet. Um, and so they, the, I think, pretty recently the, the one of the guys who solved the quasi uh, polynomial times algorithms like between graph isomorphism like he's from there and, and like i studied with that guy so like uh let's see bye bye and so like so it, it ended up like being like this weird quirk of like oh there's like all this weird stuff at this one place and it, it kind of came together and i i actually one thing one thing that really inspired me there was i was um i saw what was happening in the medical field we were talking about medic medicine before this started and there was a, a, a professor um, from, he was, I, I think he was at, um, I forget where in California, it might've been Berkeley or Stanford. No, I think it was Stanford. Yeah. Um, sure. I, I realize they're two different campuses, but to me it's just like, you know, it's California. Right. One's a golf course, one's a slum. It's okay. Um, <laughs> but um, the, but but yeah, this professor Charles Taylor at Stanford had done all this stuff on predicting heart failure and predicting heart attacks, mm-hmm. and he, he was coming at it from a blood flow problem. Like he's like, what? How does it make sense that you 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 turn off? You know, you, you don't walk into your house and turn on the 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 water and then like expect the lights to go out. Like why is it that like when blood flow starts happening a little bit differently, like all of a sudden your, your the rhythm of your heart just goes wacky, and and yeah. they kind of like 
it turned into like this really cool like problem like of like all right blood flow what's the actual interaction between the ion channels and the blood and, da, da, da. and you get into like the whole thing and it's like all right um there's a lot of data coming into these pieces and it's like mapping a lot of like different really cool physical systems and well it turns out it's really hard to do it at scale on a computer and i just fell into that right and so like i became the guy that was putting math on computers right so like the, all these crazy ideas i mean my PhD was really about like, I, let's just say, let's just call them wild ideas about fluids. <laughs> and we were trying to yeah, solve yeah. some of these problems around, you know, flows in the body. And, uh, and it just kind of came to, in order to do that, you had to write libraries that worked on very large sets of computers that we didn't, we weren't like really processing a lot of data, but we were generating a lot of data to like, to actually fl fl uh, flow through the, the mathematical code. Right. Yeah. And, and so then like after, at the end of all that, like we had some, some things that like we built this uh, project called the Phoenix project, which was able to um, build, it was a compiler that could, that I could run on like supercomputers and we ran on like half a million nodes and we're doing like really kind of crazy studies at the scale uh, uh, that's like beyond like what was normal. And that we, and that was a lot of fun. And so you, you're like, all right, how's that translate to like real world life? Well, <laughs> um, I, you know, I was a student, students graduate, I graduated, I came to UT Austin and started doing this, some of that same stuff. And it was just like, well, there's this, this is great, but like the impact of like big data over here, they're doing the same techniques. <laughs> and so <laughs> I saw like we could start at companies and, and jump into that world as opposed to like wait forever to get anything through the medical world so that was it's a actually interesting you say that i um so two two things two quick observations one i i didn't see that you were actually when you were doing like uh reonics right it's that the, the flow the yeah the, the the term that actually describes that so i did undergrad in mechanical engineering i don't know whether i ever told you that so i was all into computational fluid dynamics and cool. you know I, I still remember back in the day we were like i was you know, I, I grew up in India, so this was in a, a college down in South India. So it was actually early days was modeling with ANSYS and uh, yeah. you know, some of the early tools that are available and writing in MATLAB, right? And it was all about right. just trying to actually model these things. And uh, and, and to, to the interesting observation there, and it's it's and I'd love to hear the after story, right? Because you realize that the infrastructure was not ready to actually handle a lot of that, right? The big data, the handling big data. And, and the second thing that I, you know, I know you were about to go talk about um, the next you're going to tell me about TAC, the work you did there. <laughs> and I just remembered that we might have actually interacted when I was at Dell and it was my team that was actually uh, working with you at TAC. So Jay Boso was there and yeah. I think a bunch of different folks that I remember interacting with. So we might have actually oh, interacted yeah. back <laughs> I'm sure we met at a happy hour because there, there were, I mean, Dell, like that's that's what I really remember about Dell. Like they, they, they gave us tons of hardware and lots of happy hours because every time we published, they they, <laughs> you know, they, they got a, another. <laughs> yeah, no, that was that was actually a, so. In, in, in that you're right. Like out of out of school, I ended up at at um, Texas Advanced Computing Center, which is like the one of the premier computing centers in. Uh, in, in the world, but definitely for science and open science. Um, and, you know, so they gave me kind of a place to do the postdoc. And I we pivoted a little bit from, like, just compilers of just uh, these discrete CFD models to, like, just 
just linear algebra in general and, and so forth. But that's where like I, you know, was helping scientists day in and day out actually use these these massive machines to, to achieve their work. And um, I mean, the, the best was like I arrived and there was a study of this astro, astrophysics group that, you know, they, they were like, our code is too slow and it's, it's going to like take till the heat death of the universe for it to like actually do the thing we want. And, uh, when my, and we like rewrote it and like ran it in 23 minutes and like, um, and they're like, Oh, how the heck did you do that? And you're like, well, yeah, you don't make everything, everything an object in a list and like iterate it with a, a, a in order, uh, order in squared algorithm. Like you just kind of like figure out the, the bottleneck and whatnot. And so, so there I knew that like, I was just, that I was made for like actually helping people get problems on big computers. And like, there is a difference between uh, one of my advisors was a bioinformatics person. He's like, it's much easier to get like computer scientists to understand enough biology to get it on the computer than the biologists to understand enough for the computing. And so like, there's just like this skill of like getting the math to scale in the right way. And, that, uh, and really just sitting on a help desk and helping tons of, um, researchers at UT Austin and publishing papers with like the amazing groups there, like that kind of honed like a lot of the software skills and the scale that we needed and whatnot. Um, and so, yeah, so like we probably did meet and that was the, the fun part of that world was like, you got to see like every crazy architecture. We had a, a box, which we called the chicken fryer. I don't know if you remember, like they probably still do this, but they have these computers in order to get them to the lowest temperature possible. They put them in like all your machinery and mineral oil. And so, yep. <laughs> so you have like a, a jet going through there and like you walk in, it's like, Oh, the chicken fryer is hot, you know? And so like you'd get all sorts of, we had another one that was like this crazy network system that you had to like program, like the, the packets just landing at the right computer to do things. And so there's, some interesting kind of problems. So, so these days when people talk about like TPUs, I'm like, yeah, that, that's not exotic at all. Let me, let me tell you about like some, the crazy days of the, the 20, 2010, like 2000 and 2010, there was a lot of crazy architectures that were kind of being floated around before GPUs kind of came back and took over everything. Um, so, so yeah, so I did TAC for a little while in university. And I, I remember sitting at the university saying like, you know, I don't want really want to like, I want to have more impact and I, I don't want to like just sit at the university my whole life. And so ended up taking some work with InThought and doing some stuff on wall street and like, ah, oh, yeah, I don't really like finance. And then, uh, Travis Oliphant, um, I mean, she's like starting a new company and we should kind of work together. And so Travis Oliphant's the, the founder of NumPy and, and SciPy and, and has done a lot of stuff in the data science world. And, so we, yeah, I was, I guess, employee number one of Anaconda um, and maybe like founding team, however you want to put it. And so we kind of sat down and like, I remember going to Ikea together and getting furniture and whatnot. And we're trying to figure out how do we um, build the, the, the next kind of layer of the tools so that they get to the big data issue. Because like back then it was, and this was 2011, I think you, you could use Python and you, you could use, um, all in R and all these programming tools, but they didn't really scale. Like they hit a bottleneck at, at like once your data got into memory and they didn't integrate, integrate with databases as nearly as well as they do yep. today. And so we, we saw that like, you know, all right, we have all these folks out at academia that are doing big computer stuff, like on, on uh, big computers, like I was, and we have like the tools that like they're using, but they has to customize it all. How do we make that a lot easier to customize? And that was kind of the birth of Anaconda 
I think we, we originally were working inside in, we worked together in InThought. InThought was very much like, oh, the very focused on desktop and rapid prototyping. And we're like, no, like we, we really wanted to go beyond the cloud and, and, and use like big data and whatnot. And so that's, so kind of out of that evolution, Peter Wang and, and Travis Oliphant kind of started the company and then very uh, early Hugo Shi who's runs Saturn Cloud now, um, and I and um, Brian uh, Brandovin who built out Boca, which is one of the tools used by <laughs> some of the major um, uh, visualization systems. And we kind of sat down and like came up with a plan and that's where I built out this system called Blaze, which was like, basically I would just call it like a, a, a you took a database like and defragged it, like actually took it all apart and say like, all right, you still get your query engine, you still get your analytics engine, and we'll just integrate at the different layers. And yeah. it turns out that's very similar to what um, Tableau, the the founder of Tableau, I forgot, Christopher, oh, I forgot his last name, but he worked with Pat Hanrahan on like a paper on how to decompose the pipeline of, of visualization. So we built something very similar, an engine underneath very the hood. Um, and and we the way we got it funded was with, through uh, the DARPA's uh, Mimex uh, systems. And so there's, there was DARPA had two programs, XData and Mimex. XData was like, basically what happened was Chris White, who was a right out of John Hopkins. He went to Afghanistan and tried to use data tools and whatnot. It's like, all right, like like the old ANSYS or, or Microsoft models, like it would, or SaaS stuff, it just would break down and you couldn't fix them or whatnot. And you saw like how people like doing very basic things would we'd be referred to like just big Excel spreadsheets. And but the open source tools weren't quite ready for them. So he's like, I want to invest money to make it so that we can use, have better open source tools that to, to solve these problems. And then out of that, he had like the next program, which I think was pretty good way of like thinking about when you're doing innovation it was like, all right, we got to build the infrastructure it was X data. And then the next one was Mimex, which was really about finding, um, finding, uh, uh, trafficking on, on the internet for, for, uh, better, I remember better that. Or there I was, think Prina was involved in that too. I yeah. remember that, that yeah, Karina, Katrina that. real work. She actually, I hired her and it is like a fun story. I think she, she'll, she, she'll always look at me when I, this happens with like, I, I was invited to go to Apache Con, and at the same time, we were deli- like she, like her second day, she arrived, and like there's this big. They're like, "Oh, we've got this meeting for you to present the results." I'm like, "I'm I'm a keynote at Apache Con. I can't be here." And so her second day, she arrives and she's giving a presentation on some work that she didn't do to these like generals, <laughs> like so, yeah, at DARPA, and, and it was now, like, so. now that's the norm for any data scientist joining in yeah. any organization anywhere. <laughs> In two days, you're going to report to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and uh, don't worry, it's it's going to go swimmingly. Don't worry. <laughs> no, was, awesome. I, I think I think if she hadn't have been there, like this is what you know. One of the things I always tell people is like you got to be able to communicate well as a data scientist because you never know who's going to yeah. walk in that room, and getting that algorithm right, like, and she just nailed it right. And so I think that um, if she hadn't been there, that would have been the death knell of that project. But um, but yeah, we we were. I mean, trying to find. Trafficking on the the on the internet, like I say, internet because like they've been a big play of like oh, in the dark web and the deep web and da da da. And like at the end of the day, like yeah, it's it's basically there was like some sort of stuff behind onion routers and behind Tor and other things. But at the end of the day, like a lot of like what was happening, you would find you could just find people posting in in bulletin boards or things like that. And so um, it, that that was very interesting, like as an application of like our our tools 
helping um, helping people like find missing children and find um, kind of real kind of problems that happen in our in, in the world and and using those tools to to um, scale up what the analysts needed and whatnot. And so had a lot of fun doing that. Um, it was a huge project. Got to work with NASA and NYU and um, kind of go through that whole PI world. And, you know, it, it, was, it was a little bit crazy. I mean, DARPA doesn't, you know, they always want to dial it up to 12. They don't really want to <laughs> mess around. Like, oh, okay, you can do it. You can find some some human tracking here, but let's do it for the whole world, right? Or let's do it for like 10 different uh, variations. <laughs> and so it, it really kind of pushed the innovation side. Um, and so like DARPA's got a whole model of innovation and whatnot. So that, that kind of helped form a lot of that project. And out of that came, um, so we funded, we were funding the Blaze, but Blaze, like, it had a lot of problems as far as, like, you know, tr- what it was generally trying to do is take, like, NumPy to all these different uh, ecosystems, like SQL and Spark and, and all these other kind of places. And we had, like, array library mappings and whatnot. And out of that, the thing that really kind of took off was Dask, which was the execution layer I- inside of it. So you, if you think about, all right, you have the query layer, and, like, that was all NumPy type syntax and then we get translated to something that would then take it to the, the different backends. Um, and, and then it would be in Dask was like, became our execution layer. I mean, at the same time, like arrow Apache arrow, which is getting a lot of, yep. uh, uh, press right now, but doing a very, like they kind of Wes McKinney kind of took the same ideas except to apply it just like, let's just work on the memory side of it, not just work on the, the actual execution layer. And so like, you kind of see these, She's two, uh, like, I would call them, like, up-and-coming um, platforms right now where, like, Spark was, had already, like, Spark existed. And they were actually there with us, but we kind of ended up developing similar systems. And, and Arrow wasn't a part of that initiative, but we had a different one that was very similar to Arrow. We called it Thunderdome, and we were able to run, like, a 40-terabyte graph on it at one point. But the... But the because I'm it's the internet and like and DARPA let, let's just download the whole thing you're like okay let's try um, and so the um, so out of that you, you get like these tools that are they're not the same as like a BI tool but they're like a lot more uh, usable by data scientists and so that's kind of like how my career kind of took off is just helping building tools for scientists and data scientists and so and so that's kind of the gist of that and then. After that, I was, you know, I've, I've been a big part of NumFocus, which has been there to like help fund these tools, and that's where like they fund uh, like a hundred projects now, but like big ones like Jupiter, Python, or Pandas, yep. uh, SciPy, oh, some of uh, PyTorch stuff. I mean, there's like quite a number of things, and at that point, it was just all right. All these people are building these tools. How do you like make sure that they have a sustainable community so that they can support yep. scientists? So. Yeah, no, I think, you know, you, the, the work you did, um, and I met a few other folks too at, at NumFocus was really awesome, right? And and this was the days where those tools and infrastructure capabilities were really needed, like, you know, for, for data scientists to do their work. So pretty amazing. And, you know, a few other things that came out of your, your the, the, the background you were talking about is one is the notion of as a data scientist, you need to be able to communicate very well, yeah. right? You talked about data visualization. I want to go... Uh, double click on that a little bit more. And then the whole notion of innovation starts with, you know, you're trying to solve fundamentally, you start at the infrastructure layer, it's trying to solve, okay, here's a big audacious goal. How do we solve it? What do we have, what do we not have? 
and then start building out, like layering up the stack needed to go make that happen, right? I think it's very fascinating. It's very different, right? I mean, then then most when when startups think about let me go solve a new problem, um, some call it some people call it call this the first principle thinking, right? The whole idea is like, what do I have? What do I not have? How do I layer down the stack and start from the bottom and then build it back up, right? What would the right. most optimal, most ideal solution look like? So it's a lot of nuggets in there in that background. So bring me to today and talk to me about AI and all the ML work that's happening. I mean, in your world and outside, right? What is your 50,000 foot view of where AI is today in the market? Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a great question because I, I think that it's, it's really, we're, we're at a moment, right? Where like AI needs a little bit more definition than what it's getting in the market. Um, and I mean, so I was reading the data scientists today, right? Like a lot of what they do is like what we used to call data data analysts and data analysts yeah. are doing a lot of what we call, you know, um, ad, uh, database administration and, and, and things like that. And so like even the word AI, like, you know, you get um, like, was it Michael? I, uh, uh, Jordan, who was saying like, don't even call it AI, call it like statistical engineering. And, and so like, there's like, there's this huge back and forth and like, all right, yes, in the world of AI, the, you know, there's definitely algorithms and automated way of thinking that allow you to build systems, right? And so whenever I hear the word AI, I'm usually like, well, you really have to have a, a whole system to be an AI system piece. Like you can't, learning isn't like enough. You actually have to have control and and, and integration into your into your uh, whatever feedback loops or whatever it is that, that you're working with. And so I, I work with a lot of companies and actually build myself as an AI executive because like it's like well who knows what AI is so like, you even call themselves an AI executive I guess. But um, but to me it's it's about the system of using automated uh, algorithmic learnings and also all the feedback loops to make that happen. Like today I work at Zometry, which is a cloud manufacturing system. And so we use a lot of, we're definitely an AI system and there's a lot of data scientists working on things like our marketing systems, working on like business operations. And the heart of like what we do is just like pricing algorithms and and like picking who should build parts. And so like in, in cloud manufacturing, you upload your part file and instead of like going to your local shop, like we analyze it and then say, all right, we have, 5,000 people who could possibly, or 5,000 manufacturing shops who could possibly make this part. And then we match them up. So then it, it takes away the, the, the problem of like, if you need a part made, you have to go to like 10 people get quotes and like, you don't even know who's going to make it and, and so forth. Um, yeah. And so we can solve some of that. So like an, as an automated system, like, all right, we can provide better information because we're seeing the parts from all these, these 5,000 partners come through us. Uh, we see your part. We see who's going to make it the, the best. And we can both like optimize your price, your your, your lead time, and, and many different pieces to it. But that's just, you know, just the analyzing and the algorithm of the machine learning to like figure those pieces. That's just one piece. If if like, if it goes to that, that um, I mean, a factory shop and they don't do a good job, well, we got to, we, we have, we have backup systems and fail safes sure. to fix that sort of thing. Right. And so it's just like, if you're going to build a car, like you can't just, build just the thing that tells you how fast to go. You have to build like all the things that like, uh Oh, we screwed up. We got to back up or we got to reroute and, and things like that. And so to me, you know, when we talk about AI, like I think that's where the industry, like there's the marketing speak, which is like, Oh yeah. Anytime you have like a, a linear regression and a spreadsheet, that's AI. And like, okay, 
great. You guys go have fun. But like when I think of AI, I really think about these like systems that, you know, are adding automation to them. And like, I actually, I always tell, I get, I give this book to all my teams whenever I started like the, the goal by Eliu Goldrat. And like, I mean, it's a, you know, business one-on-one book, but like you, you go and you're like, what are the problems they were trying to solve in that book? It was like, they were bringing automation and robots to factories in the eighties. And like, they would add a robot and it didn't make them faster. It didn't make them better because they didn't fix their processes. Um, and yeah. it's a book, like it's a fable talking about how do you think through like the actual goal of your business. And I yep. think a lot of companies need to do the same thing with AI is like, all right, so I have an automated system. It can take, um, in pardon, but they, another kind of metaphor to this, I give to folks is like, if you're, if you're making a decision on Excel spreadsheets, how often are you going to be able to make a decision? Maybe once a week, you have errors, you have check, like you're going to get things going on. You move it up to a database. Maybe you can do a daily sort of thing. You get to a real-time system. And now I can actually have updates and, and live uh, feeds. And that's you in the big data world. And then you can start to like think about automating these pieces. So if there's no point in automating a, a decision that's going to be made every week. But if I can automate something that's going to be made every two seconds, like that's like now I can that's invest good. in the machinery. And the same thing with like robotics in the eighties, like, all right, so I have a, a thing that can make more parts. Well, what did it do? It just made us like, all right, well, the bottleneck ended up being like the heat, heat treat plant or it's, or like, or getting the materials to that, that robot or something. And so AI, I think is as an industry, it is in that moment where one, we have to shed off like all the kind of hype stuff around. It's just like, I'm sorry guys, like data analysts, I yeah. love you. I think you're very valuable, but please stop calling that AI. <laughs> um, just because you're doing linear regression, great. I mean, linear regression can work in an AI system. That's not the the, the issue, yeah. but it's more that like as a business, you really need to have the whole processes around that. And I think that in the news, I was at a uh, startup in real estate, as you know, at, at Rex Homes. And in the new, I mean, we ran a lot of pricing algorithms. Yeah. And the news you see is Zillow famously pulled out of all of its uh, algorithmic pricing and its investment buying and like, yeah, you dig a little deeper in what happened. And I look at it as like, yeah, they, there was the system layers that didn't exist. And when they spent too much money and were overcapitalized in this market, they couldn't predict. They didn't have those fail states. They, they failed it. They had the AI, like just the learning algorithm told them what to buy, but they didn't have the systems that, that fed them back actual um, data and, and portfolio management and whatnot. And so like, I look at that underlying, that's probably the biggest thing that failed is that company and AI, if you don't, if you don't build it as a full system and your yep. entire company, it's going to have a lot of challenges. No, you know, it, 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 when people, and I, I completely agree. I mean, people ask me like, you know, what's the difference between AI and ML? Isn't that the same thing? I'm like, look, one is a technique, one is an approach, right? At the broadest sense. Right. And to your point, like AI should be truly, you know, trying to get to artificially intelligent systems where you're trying to get, cognitive functions on a non-living thing, you have to think about it as a system, not just the fact that it's going to run a regression and give you an output or, or a score, right? So you, you, you have to start thinking about how is that being used. So building an AI system, and this is like, my question to you is like state of the enterprise today, right? A lot of ML building happening, not enough AI right. system building happening, right? I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. And I, I think product managers, like you, you see like, maybe the, the last two decades have been like the era of the product manager and like a product manager doesn't understand how AI algorithms work is, is going to have a hard time in the next 20 years. Right. It's because it's becoming like just 
table stakes at this point. Like everybody yep. is running ML and they're hiring machine learning engineering, but it, it doesn't work the same. It's not like uh, building a web app where like, oh, I told the engineer to make this per the pixel perfect thing and it was made and then we we monitor it. No, no, no. Like it's a probabilistic system and you've got to have a, a little bit more give and and, and do analysis around the, the um, actual states that it can get into and then and the backstops there. And so, yeah, I think that AI, you can still be an AI and not necessarily be the, the machine learning person or the or the, the coder or, or something else, but like you still as a business person need to understand how these algorithms work. Because if you don't, you're going to be really surprised by the the effects they have, like the Zillow case. Um, and if you don't like help learn it, like it, I mean, I think AI is eating the world. And like, yeah, I think at the end of the day, it's a better way of making decisions because you you can act so so much quicker on um, on the data you have. So. No, I you know makes makes total sense. No, I think you know it's it's. It's um, it's interesting, and you have had a lot of experience across multiple industries. Not just it's not limited to one industry instead, which is what I love about your background, right? Because you totally have seen this, and and in different in- industries that are different stages of maturity in applying these yeah. techniques, right? So with Absolutely. financial services yeah. does real estate is very different, and bringing that system level thinking, bringing that whole. No- I love what you said about product managers because w- one of the things that um, most organizations that struggle with, they start their ML uh, journey or AI journey by hiring a bunch of data scientists. And you know then they realize that this, these people start complaining. So they will go and hire a bunch of data engineers to help query data and give it to them, right? And then they're still like, why am I actually not going into production? Because you haven't really yeah. defined a function of taking technology and putting it to use. And that, you know, is it's been the era of product management, as you said, right? Uh, it, it is, I would say, the one of the biggest gaps I've seen in most organizations or is actual and uh, redesigning your product management function to work with evolving systems like machine learning algorithm based products, right? So um, it's an interesting thing. Let me ask you a question on the data science side itself, right? Yep. What makes a good data scientist? I mean, how do you, uh, what are the characteristics you look for when you hire people? Um, and then what do you, what's your advice to people trying to become good data scientists? Yeah, and I'm, I'm a big tent kind of person i just you know i've had data science teams and like so and i've helped build lots of like in this i'm advising like six companies now and like and i help them try to think through like what kind of data science team they want and you know there's there's groups that are very much like you know goal oriented finance type things right like i need to like i i have uh maybe just the way i'm doing some pricing or the way i'm doing some optimization of a process and then you have like very engineering organizations which is like i need to automate at scale or something and i always tell me like you know there's basically two tricks there's you can analyze things much better and much more automated and, and like give a real deep causal analysis or you can automate things and like when you can do both it's awesome right but to be honest like you really only have two tricks to analyze and automate and as a as somebody who's getting into ai you kind of have to figure out where your what your passion is right because if you're if you love finding that nugget of truth, it's like, ah, this is like the aha moment. Then, you, then you're the analyst side. You've got to really learn how to communicate. You've got to learn how to um, model the domain that people are at, like work with subject matter experts to like take their the, the things that they're in their head to like actual like data and like represent those in algorithms or whatnot. And then you got to know your statistics and the, all the all the different pieces of that. 
if you're if you're like, well, man, the really cool part is like making this work for 10,000 people at a time or making the car drive itself. Like, all right, great. So that's that's more the engineering, the automation work. And so now you got to really learn yeah. how to code. You got to learn the, the, the DevOps world and you have to kind of understand like what this like, oh, I have an algorithm. How do I make, how do I get the feedback loop in that algorithm? How do I make sure the data is clean and that sort of thing? And so like once you've kind of established those two things, right, then you can kind of like piece together like what your career might look like. And like both like amazing uh, opportunities at them. And so and now you see in the market, a lot of times people like call the automation, like ML engineering and, and data scientists kind of become like the group that's doing a lot of the analysis. Um, even to the point where some folks like, yeah, if you want to be a data scientist, you got to know SQL. Like, you know, and, and uh, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll admit I didn't learn SQL until like way late in my career because like I was more of the automation guy. And so, and I've had cases where like, well, the best data science I work with, is a, you know, it's a kid from Berkeley. And like I gave him once one of the analyzed problems and like he totally failed. <laughs> he was like, I don't know how all this data works together or whatnot. But I asked him to build me an algorithm that like tells me like the, the square footage of any any uh, kind of room given like a few pictures. And like he could do that very accurately. So the, the, the split is pretty real. When I look for teams, though, I look at like, all right, what are the goals of the organization? Like do they need help like just translating the um, the business problem to like data problems? Do they need help actually just automating those problems? And so I, I looked for those pieces. Like, and if it, if you try to fit a data scientist in any one of these holes, it becomes, it, that's where I see a lot of failure because you can't just put somebody who's like really good at automating and like expect them to go find the, the fault in your, 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 maybe your at marketing strategy or something. And so, so in that, like helping people kind of learn those pieces. So if you are in that analyzing side of it, though, like then it's like the analyst folks really communication matters so much just because you have to work with your stakeholders and to, mm. to translate what they're doing. And there's, there's been a lot of like nuance that comes out like a good one, for example, um, when I was doing real estate stuff, like real estate has a lot of weird rules in it. Like, for example, here in the U.S., if it goes live on the market. Uh, it, it, you start calculating what's called the DOM or days on market. And that thing like can be reset in various ways. And you're like, well, that's, that's interesting as a data person. Like I see it's one day, day on market, but it's like, well, ah, there's a true day on market. And like people who bought houses here kind of know this, like, huh, that house was on the market, but then it went off and then I came back. And so it might say two days, but it's actually been there six months. Right. And so like that little nuance, like if you're not listening to your, to your subject matter experts to, to communicate with them, you're going to miss it and just totally blow the modeling. So, so that, yep. I mean, those are a few guidelines there. Got it. Yeah, no, in that case, in that scenario, right. Imagine having all the weightage like on that particular thing. And then suddenly you're just right. looking at dud houses that has been in the market for a long time and then pulled out and then put back in. Right. So, and, and I'll <laughs> tell you, like if, if, when you run your first linear regression algorithm on uh, housing prices, like, DOM is a huge one because like it's one of the only things that can tell you that this this home probably has something wrong with it because if like if your DOM goes too high like if it's it's outside your standard deviation of your of your market like usually that's an indication that there's something wrong in this house that's being hidden and so that's awesome. No, I think, you know, this is great, Andy. I mean, you a lot of practical nuggets to pull out of here. Let me uh, and I know in the interest of time, I want to try to wrap up 
Give us a, a, you know, if you're an organization, what's your advice to organizations looking at AI? Either starting their journey or if they're already in the journey, how do they scale it? Give me your top three to five pieces of advice. Yeah, I mean, the big one is to invest in teams and let the teams like figure out organically like who they need, right? Like like you said, like a lot of folks are like, oh, we'll hire 10 data scientists. Well, hire one data scientist and one engineer and, and one product manager and like let them organically figure out what problems they can solve together. And, and then it becomes a little bit more pressure on like get the right ones. But so maybe you yeah. hire a couple of teams, but like really bring them together to teams. Because I, I have a strong feeling that you, if you put data scientists in just off on their own, like that doesn't really work nearly as well as like embedding them with teams that are trying to solve problems. Um, and then like you can kind of like start to, to find commonalities and bring that together and have some more centralization. Um, the other side is like, yeah, your data matters probably more than you ever, ever know, right? You need to very, very much like care about your data model. If there's anything I would say to every CEO out there that thinks they're an AI company, if you can't tell me how your data model works, you're not an AI company. Period. Like in AI, data is, is like it's it's fundamental and like companies kind of like shovel that off and like, ah, oh, that's that's the data engineering team's problem. Like, no, I mean, your core business is, has to be really brought down to some like very fundamental objects and like data interactions that, that you can understand. And so those are two two pieces of advice. Make your teams diverse and give them like kind of like all parts of the problem and like make focus on your data a lot. That is <laughs> That is so awesome. You know what? I want to actually bring you back on the pod like later on on a part two yeah. discussion where I want to explore a lot of the industry use cases that you've actually done, like more in the world of applied AI, right? But thanks right. for sharing your insight. How can the viewers and listeners get in touch with you? Where can they find you on the internet? Uh, well, um, if, you, if you try to touch me on LinkedIn, I'm around. Um, you might be like filtered out from all the, like the, you have to, you have to be, Somewhat, you know, these days, like all the recruiters and all the like uh, sales vendors, like hit me up there. But... I heard your podcast. I heard you. Yeah. I heard you on Stories in AI, and then yeah. there you go. You get the right. Just mention right? Ganesha's name, and like we're having beers together. That's that's enough, right? <laughs> so I love that. I love that. Uh, that's awesome. So LinkedIn, and I'll put that in the show notes. Andy, thank you so much for taking the time. It's always a pleasure. I learn so much every time I have this conversation, any of these conversations with you. Next time, we're definitely doing it over a beverage. And then until then, thanks so much for jumping on. Right. Take care. Thanks, Ganesh. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, I encourage you to do three things. Number one, share with your friends and family. If someone else can learn from this, get inspired and take action, they need to. Number two, subscribe so you do not miss a single episode. You can do it at your favorite podcast location or at youtube.com. Number three, let me know if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for me or my guests. And check out storiesinai.com to access show notes and more resources. Thank you for listening. See you next time.